What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hello and welcome back to Agrag. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we've got a really timely and important and great show for you today. I have with me Dr. Catherine Hoops, who is an assistant professor of anesthesiology, though she is trained in pediatrics and PICU, but here at Johns Hopkins, the PICU belongs to the Department of Anesthesiology, hence she is a assistant professor of anesthesiology and not a pediatrics, but she is also core faculty at the Center for Gun Violence Solutions, and she has a joint appointment in health policy and management at the Bloomberg School of Public Health here at Johns Hopkins. She is a fantastic teacher and leader in this really important area of gun violence prevention, and we are going to talk about that, and that's why we've got her on the show. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, We've heard a lot. I mean, it's such a timely issue right now um, in a lot of ways, unfortunately, but certainly folks have heard a lot on the news about increases in gun violence, both during the pandemic and, of course, with mass shootings that have happened uh, lately. What changes can you break down that that suggest what's going on here? Let's talk about some of the data and, and what we actually know. Yeah, sure. So. First, let me start by saying that all the data I'm um, going to be referencing is coming from uh, CDC's underlying cause of death database. That's part of the wide ranging online data for epidemiologic research or the WONDER database. Um, the underlying cause of death database contains data based on death certificates for uh, US residents. So gun violence has long been a public health crisis in the United States and it affects all of our health and well-being in some way. Um, but in 2020, the most recent year for which complete data is available, gun deaths reached the highest number ever recorded. It was a surging epidemic within the COVID-19 pandemic, and over 45,000 people died from gun injuries in 2020. That's an average of 124 people every day, and that's 15 more people per day than in 2019. So that increase was largely uh, driven by gun homicides, which rose dramatically across the country, increasing by 35% in just one year. That's nearly 5,000 more lives lost to gun, hom gun homicides in 2020 than in 2019. These increases are seen in urban and rural communities. It's a common misconception that gun homicide is an urban problem, but it actually is relatively similar in urban versus rural communities. But while what I said earlier you know, is that all people in all communities are affected by gun violence, it's really important and everyone needs to realize that gun violence is one of the worst health disparities in our nation. Gun homicides are concentrated within neighborhoods composed of predominantly Black and Hispanic or Latino residents. These neighborhoods face a host of systemic inequalities, hypersegregation, discrimination, lack of economic opportunities, and under-resourced public services. And as a result, young Black and Hispanic or Latino people, particularly males, are disproportionately impacted by gun, gun homicide. 
So to add some numerical granularity, young black males, um, those ages 15 to 34, represent 2% of the total US population but they accounted for 38% of all gun homicide fatalities in 2020. Their rate of firearm homicide was almost 21 times higher than white males for the same age group. So black men overall are 15 times more likely to die by firearm homicide than white men. Black women are five times more likely to die by firearm homicide than white women. Gun suicides also remained at historically high levels. And while gun homicides rose dramatically in 2020, gun suicides still represent the majority of gun deaths each year. In contrast to homicides, elderly white men are at increased risk for gun suicide because this demographic is most likely to live in more rural communities with limited availability of mental health services and easy access to firearms. Contrasted to homicide, suicide is highly associated with urbanization, and the more rural an area is, the higher the rate of suicide. And this really highlights the need for mental health resources that can reach every community. I also want to be sure to call everyone's attention to the fact that American Indian and Alaskan Native males have the highest rate of firearm suicide compared to any other race or ethnicity in the U.S., and while the available data highlight that gun violence many American Indian and Alaskan Native people face, the data on this demographic underreport the true number of victims of gun violence. And this is a result of incomplete or inconsistent reporting of missing persons, especially among women, as well as misclassification of race and ethnicity categories among American Indian and Alaskan Native people. Yeah, those are really striking numbers and and I appreciate you highlighting the disparity um you know we've seen that in the news recently too and obviously it's a, a thing that needs a lot of attention the other thing that you hear a lot in the news is about you know a lot of push for changes to laws affecting gun sales what what do we know about gun sales and how that may or may not be a part of this yeah that's a great question so 2020 also brought record gun sales millions of people um, including many first-time purchasers bought guns and tens of thousands of these new guns turned up at crime scenes across the country, almost twice as many as in 2019. And while the precise effects of increasing firearm sales on gun deaths is the subject of intense ongoing research, it's been repeatedly shown that increased access to firearms contributes to increased gun deaths. Yeah, I mean, it certainly makes sense logically, um, but it's, it's good to know there's data to back that up, um, as you say. You're a pediatrician. I'm sure you think a lot about how this affects kids. What what do we know specifically about childhood mortality and how that's changed over the course of this spike in, in gun violence? Yeah, another great question. Um, and and yeah, definitely an area of focus for me, for many of my colleagues, um, you know, as a, as a clinician, as a parent, as a gun violence prevention researcher. Um, and, and guns were the leading cause of death among children and teens in 2020 accounting for more deaths than COVID-19, car crashes, and cancers. And in the New England Journal article that'll be linked with the podcast, you see that firearms became the leading cause of death among youth, surpassing motor vehicle collisions. And the article that, that will be linked does a beautiful job discussing this, but the decline in MVC deaths or motor, motor vehicle collision deaths and the rise in gun deaths are the public health approach in action for NBCs and in inaction for firearm deaths. Um, and there are strategies that work that I'd love to tell you more about in a moment, but for now let's 
put a little finer detail on pediatric fire of injury. Since again, I'm a pediatrician and a parent and these numbers, I hope compel many of us to action. Yeah. So again, firearms are the leading cause of death for children and teens ages one to 19. They prematurely took the lives of over 4,000 young people in 2020. Homicides are the most common type of gun death among children and teens. 64% of child and teen gun deaths were homicides and 30% were suicides. And while teenagers account for the majority of these deaths, an average of eight children ages zero to 12 were killed by guns every week in 2020. And every 2.5 days, a child or teen was killed by an unintentional gun injury. Again, black children and teens face alarmingly high rates of gun victimization and more than half of all black teens ages 15 to 19 who died in 2020, 52% were killed by gun violence. Wow, that is striking and sobering. And as you say, it's hard to hear those numbers and not want to know how to help stop this. Um, and so let's let's talk about that. I mean, you know, the horrible tragedies we've seen recently in Uvalde, Texas, and in Buffalo, obviously uh, have been just tragic to see and and are clearly weighing on many many people as they should be. What do we know about evidence based gun violence prevention measures? Yeah, so bottom line up front, states with stronger gun laws have lower rates of violence. Um, if I could write a few prescriptions to lawmakers, um, the first one I would write um, would say that states should implement firearm purchaser licensing, also known as permit to purchase um, laws that require prospective gun purchasers to obtain a license prior to buying a gun. Um, firearm purchaser licensing systems create a structure to verify individuals' identities and ensure that they're not prohibited from gun ownership. Background checks as a part of a uh, firearm purchaser licensing system often are facilitated using fingerprints and used records at the state level that might not have been reported to the federal system. And firearm purchaser licensing laws are associated with lower rates of diversion for guns for use in crime, lower rates for homicide and suicide by firearm, lower rates of mass shootings, and lower rates of shootings by police. Uh, and they have widespread support, including by gun owners. Comprehensive state licensing policies also close the so-called Charleston loophole, uh, under which a sale must proceed if a background check at a licensed dealer isn't complete within three days. That's the gap in our current system that led to a gunman obtaining a weapon with which he murdered nine people at a Bible study at Emmanuel AME Church in South Charleston, South Carolina. The next policy measure that we know work, um, two policy measures really, that we know work to prevent gun homicide and suicide are domestic violence protection orders and extreme risk protection orders or ERPO, which you may also hear called uh, red flag laws. So DVPOs or domestic violence protective orders um, are court orders, civil court orders to protect victims and survivors of domestic violence or intimate partner violence, including dating partners. So federal law prohibits anyone who is subject to a DVPO issued after notice and hearing from purchasing or possessing firearms. And the stronger those DVPO protections, the more lives are saved. For example, the largest reductions in intimate partner homicide connected to um, DVPO firearm restrictions are those that extend to dating partners. This closes the boyfriend loophole. Um, those with temporary or emergency orders and those that explicitly require defendants to surrender their firearms. And Extreme Catherine, sorry, let me, let me just ask you. So the boyfriend loophole, is that 
the idea that if a if a, a domestic violence prevention order applies only to a marriage, then of course, if you're not married but you are dating, that wouldn't apply. Right, exactly. Um, and thank you for clarifying. The the current law um, excludes a broad swath of abusers by not including many dating partners. Um, there are certain qualifications that, um, that, again, have resulted in what's called the boyfriend loophole um, by dating partners or other intimate partners being excluded from the, the current policy. Thank you for clarifying. Great, thank you. All right, so that would be good to close. <laughs> and then um, what about uh, extreme, um, the ERPOs? Tell me again what ERPO stands for. And that's another, what people might know is red flag laws. Yeah, so extreme risk protective order or ERPO because extreme risk protective order can be a mouthful. Um, they're modeled after um, domestic violence protective orders or DVPOs. Um, and they also create a civil process allowing law enforcement, family members, and in some states, medical professionals, to petition a court to temporarily separate someone at imminent risk of harming themselves or others from their firearms. So ERPOs also prohibit individuals from acquiring new guns for the duration of the order, which is usually a year. Um, ERPO laws are associated with lower rates of firearm suicide and have been successfully used in response to threats of mass shootings. Um, again, these have a very high degree of support by gun owners and across the political spectrum and something that you'll be hearing discussed a lot in, in months to come. Um, my next prescription to lawmakers would be regarding child access prevention laws. Um, I also think that counseling on safe storage is the low hanging fruit for clinician engagement in injury prevention. Um, so first and foremost, and I never um, miss an opportunity to <laughs> describe what safe storage is, every firearm should be stored unloaded, separate from ammunition, in a locked box or with an external locking device every time it is out of the immediate possession of the adult gun owner. That's safe storage. Why? Um, a huge body of literature shows that having a gun in the home increases the risk of homicide and suicide by as much as threefold, even in uh, controlling for a host of risk factors. And we know that 35 to 40% of homes with children have at least one gun. And we know that over half of those guns are not safely stored, putting children at risk. When we think about risk of suicide among adolescents in particular, 45% of fatal suicide attempts were committing use, committed using a firearm, usually obtained from a family member's home. Now, when guns are safely stored in the home, there are substantial reductions in unintentional injuries as well as suicide and homicide. And that risk reduction isn't just in kids. Safe storage is a deterrent to suicide by adults as well, since the time from suicidal ideation to suicide attempt is often under five minutes. It also prevents theft, which is an important portal of entry for, for crime guns. So child access prevention laws require gun owners to store their guns in ways that children can't access them and impose penalties if children do, or in some cases could, gain access to them. These policies are really variable across states. The age varies, the degree to which um, safe storage is prescribed uh, varies, but overall these laws are associated with reduction in unintentional injury and firearm suicide. And again, the stronger the penalty, the greater the reduction in gun deaths. 
Um, finally, and perhaps something that would be best left to um, you know, a, a full discussion in another session, um, community violence interventions. Uh, these are promising programs that aim to identify and support uh, people at risk for violence by helping them peacefully resolve conflicts and providing them with wraparound mental health and social and community support. These might include uh, violence inter interruption programs, group violence intervention strategies, violence reduction through blight remediation, hospital-based violence intervention programs, and programs that use cognitive behavioral therapy, programs that provide life coaching and case management to those at risk for violence. But really, we need interagency community partnerships to address the root causes of inequity and injustice that perpetuate violence. Um, and CVIs, or community violence interventions, are a promising direction for that. Great. Well, certainly sounds like something worth talking more about, but but they do sound promising. I want to just ask about safe storage. You know, I would imagine you might hear someone say, well, I, I'm all for trying to prevent pediatric injuries and unintentional use. But, you know, if I someone breaks into my home and I've got my gun, you know, in my bedside table and it's got one of these locks, can I even is it even useful to me, right? Can I get it and assemble it, take the lock off, you know? And I, I'm pretty sure I, 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 that that answer to that is yes, right? These are pretty easy to, It's not. it doesn't make your gun not usable. You can very quickly still assemble it if needed. Is that right? Stay with us. We'll be right back with the answer to the question about safe storage in just a sec. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, we're back. And Dr. Hoops is going to tell us if you can still use your gun for protection, even if it's safely stored. Yeah, another, another great question and um, a, a common perceived barrier to implementing safe storage. Um, and personal protection is a common reason for gun ownership and a, you know, a perfectly valid reason for gun ownership, right? Um, and just because um, you know, one owns a gun for personal protection does not mean that one cannot safely store that gun. We know from old um, law enforcement studies that a safely stored firearm can still be accessed quickly um, and used for personal protection. Um, so you know, we'd like to counsel, um, counsel families who own guns for personal protection that you can still store a gun safely in a nightstand drawer, for example, in a key-coded gun safe. Um, and it would still be available then to, to protect yourself and your, and your family. Yeah, great question. Great. All right. So you are, as we said up front, you're a pediatrician and a pediatric intensivist. Not everyone would make that logical connection to getting involved in this type of research. Clearly, as a pediatrician and as you said, as a mother, you know, you have a reason to care, obviously, about any kind of um, violence that could affect either your patients or, or children in general. But, you know, you've taken it really a step further by getting very involved in research and, and even and we'll, we'll have you tell us a little bit about the additional studying you're doing related to this. But tell me a little bit about that. How did you get involved? What, what has driven your interest and in, in further pursuit of this work? 
Yeah, so um, I grew up in Northwest Florida and South Alabama. I grew up in an entrenched gun culture, uh, surrounded by hunting and shooting sports and in a high concentration of military personnel. Um, I also spent much of my free time growing up on the commercial hunting camp that my family owns and operates. And I was taught about guns and gun safety from a young age. But as a med student and later as a pediatrics resident, I realized that not everyone was nearly as comfortable talking about firearms as I was. And I wanted to help address that as I saw children, my patients uh, dying from gun injuries. So during medical school, I took a year to do a master's in public health with a focus on health policy and violence prevention. And this was life changing. I continued to do injury prevention and violence prevention research and advocacy as a pediatrics resident and as a pediatric critical care fellow. Um, but as a, as a pediatric intensivist, I realized, and I often paraphrase Dr. Paul Wise when I say this, but as intensivists, we have front row seats to bear witness to the effects of policy failures on child and adult health. And time and time again, we see that law and policy are powerful tools for health, perhaps equal or greater than medicine. Um, so you alluded to this, I decided to go to law school, um, and I, I hope to develop a medical legal partnership that can help to address patients' health-harming legal needs, um, including um, continuing our, our violence prevention and, and gun policy research and advocacy initiatives. That's fantastic. And, you know, I, you and I have had a conversation that clearly not everybody you know, needs a JD and an MD in order to do this work. But I think, you know, the leaders in this movement do. And so it's great that you're really um, have already and continue to take that lead role and that you're getting this training to really be able to take it further, which is just fantastic. Now, you'll have this background. You already have a lot of it and you're building more. How do you channel that when you talk to patients? How do you talk to patients about gun safety? And, and I imagine this can be really tough, right? I mean, you you don't know what, uh, you know, a patient or, or your, if you're, if we refer to the kid as the patient, the family member, the adults, you know, what their kind of take on this is, whether they they own guns or not, what their kind of political leanings are. So it's, it's a complex and I, I think potentially very fraught discussion. So how do you do that? Um, how do you talk to patients and families about this? Yeah, I mean, I think that like any of the, the hard things that we talk about in medicine, you know, we come at it with a perspective of, of cultural humility and appreciative inquiry. Um, you know, I, I say a lot that counseling on firearms needs to be universal, but the content has to be customized. Um, we should be talking to all of our patients, pediatric and adult, about access to firearms, but everyone's risk and needs are going to be different. So you'll talk differently about firearms with a parent of a three-year-old than you will with a parent of a teen or with an elderly adult. Um, you know, and, and then what do I use to, to help me to counsel patients and families? Again, it's coming from that perspective, but there are a lot of validated models for counseling patients on a range of health risk behaviors, the HEADS assessment for adolescents, for example, um, but there aren't for gun safety. But one that we found easy to extrapolate for gun safety was the five A's model, um, the implementation of which has been shown to approve, um, improve motivation to lose weight and actual weight loss when applied to weight loss counseling and increase quit, att quit attempts when applied to smoking cessation. And you may have used the five A's in other contexts too. It's a commonly used um, model for many uh, screening, brief intervention, referral to treatment or expert models. So what are the five A's that I use? Um, ask, advise, assess, assist, arrange. So ask. We should be asking every patient about the presence of guns in the home. 
Notice I didn't say gun ownership. So on a policy level, I care about legal ownership, et cetera, but on an individual level, I only care about access. Is there a gun in the home? Um, next day, advise. So advise your patient in clear and personalized language on the risk posed to them by firearms. So as in this context, you can tell your patient about the hierarchy of safe storage. So bare minimum, guns are stored unloaded, then unloaded with an external locking device, unloaded with an internal locking device, unloaded in a drawer safe or box, and unloaded in an immovable wall safe. You can also advise your patients on other options for storing guns at local gun clubs or ranges or on voluntary transfers, or talk to them about other gun policies that might be relevant to them. And then next day, assess your, their interest in adopting safe storage or safe handling behaviors or their needs for other resources. And then assist them in making that behavior change, such as by providing information on the cost of storage devices and where to get them. And finally, and the A that has been uh, shown to be the most effective component of the model, arrange follow-up, um, even just by phone to see how they've done and to continue to help them to address barriers to safe storage or other um, health behavior change they would like to implement. When we tested this model in a simulation setting, residents improved the quality uh, of their counseling um, and uh, endorsed greater comfort and confidence in counseling. So you could consider uh, using this as a guide for your counseling on safe storage or safety generally too. Right. I mean, it's a, a sounds like a great model for for helping people with anything. But as you said, certainly it applies here. Um, exactly. And you know, it's it doesn't seem like this would take a huge amount of time, right? This is something you can do fairly quickly and um, you know provide people with some help once you are familiar with the things that you can offer and the resources, even if it's just you know a few different links you can you can help give them. Um, now there's a lot of people listening who are anesthesiologists or going to be anesthesiologists or who are practicing anesthesia in, in, in one way or another or critical care. And what I, I probably, let's take a minute just to try to connect for them. You've already given one idea, which is just kind of using this five A's model to help people think about gun safety. And that would apply to any, any practitioner with any patient, right? It doesn't matter what your specialty but if you think um, more about how folks can play a role in violence and injury prevention, are there other thoughts you'd recommend that people consider doing? Yeah, well, I think you're, you're exactly right, right? We all have a role in injury prevention, in violence prevention, and there are a lot of ways that we can do that in all healthcare settings. Um, so first, I think we all have a responsibility to implement a trauma-informed approach and to build trauma-informed systems. So what is the trauma-informed approach? It's a framework that acknowledges the ubiquity of trauma. It assesses for, recognizes, and responds to the effects of traumatic stress, such as violence. And implementation of a trauma-informed approach is known to promote resilience and recovery and interrupt pathways to, to future violence. And I'm happy to provide some, some resources on uh, trauma-informed care um, also. The, um, the other way that all practitioners can get involved, um, anesthesiologists in particular, um, is by calling for more education in all of our settings, right? We need to conduct greater education on firearm injury prevention, both in our classrooms for our trainees, but also at the bedside for patients and families. And maybe in some of those brief perioperative interactions, that's just distributing printed educational materials 
or implementing a brief safety screening device that can help connect patients with more resources. And finally, I think that we as, as healthcare professionals have powerful voices to advocate for policies that we believe um, and that the evidence shows will benefit our patients and their families. And I think we should use them. And I think we should vote. Couldn't agree more. Um, this is such important stuff. And I, I think, you know, this is one of those areas where I don't think anyone is untouched by this, whether that's either just from seeing the news or from personal experience. And yet I think so many people out there feel like, well, this is terrible, but there's nothing I can do about it. And, and so I think you've laid out some really important and, and very doable things that people can do to actually have an impact here. And when you look at what, how we started, where you told us about the the just horrendous statistics that are affecting people's lives, children's lives, ending lives, uh, you know, every day, uh, every little bit matters. So, you know, I, I want to just, again, thank you for, for sharing all of this, for the, your own work that you're doing and for giving us some idea of how we can play a role in trying to help uh, make this better. Thank you so much for having me and for your attention to this issue. Um, it's one that, that touches all of us um, in personal settings in our professional settings. Um, and I do, I, I really believe that we have the ability to, to impact change, both at the bedside and, and beyond. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Gather. Let's turn to the part of our show where we make random recommendations. What would you like to share with the audience? Something they can check out uh, to further their own um, enjoyment or growth or whatever you have for them? Oh man, um, I think I'm gonna make a, um, a nerdy law student recommendation um, to your audience, um, which is um, available on Audible and a pretty quick read, but really galvanizing and interesting um, is We the People by Erwin Chemerinsky, who is one of the foremost constitutional law scholars. And it's um, just a, a wonderful view on popular constitutionalism and, um, and on the constitution. I think it's fascinating um, and I hope you'll check it out. Great. That sounds amazing. I heard him um, interviewed on a, a podcast called uh, Amicus, which is a Slate podcast about um, the courts and the Constitution and the Supreme Court. And he, he seemed like just an incredible guy. So I'm, I'm very interested to read that myself. Um, on a very different tack, I will recommend um, the new season of Stranger Things. Uh, it's season four. And I'll tell you, we all, my wife and I watched the first three seasons. We almost didn't watch the fourth because it had gotten some bad reviews. And um, I'm so glad that we ignored them and went ahead and watched it because uh, though we're actually, it's only, we're only half, they did this thing where they released half the episodes and now it's a little hiatus and then the other half are coming out. But we were hooked um, on the first half of season four. So I will say, don't listen to the reviews. If you liked the first part, the first three seasons of Stranger Things, check out season four. It is not a show to watch with kids, even like where they can hear it, because it is very gory, very like alien monsters kind of thing. So kids that might have nightmares do not do not watch this around them. Um, but for uh, the adults out there who are interested, it's certainly fun, interesting and well done. All right, Catherine, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, ACRAC.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. 
I'm at Jay Walpaw on Twitter, and we're at ACRAC Podcast, and you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Ryan Okonski is our social media manager. Dr. April Liu and Edison Jang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.